Chapter Five of the Valley of the Moon by Jack London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book One, Chapter Five. At eight o'clock, the Alta Vista band played "Home Sweet Home," and following the hurried rush through the twilight to the picnic train, the four managed to get double seats facing each other. When the aisles and platforms were packed by the hilarious crowd, the train pulled out for the short run from the suburbs into Oakland. All the car was singing a score of songs at once, and Bert, his head pillowed on Mary's breast, with her arms around him, started on the banks of the Wabash. And he sang the song through, undeterred by the bedlam of two general fights, one on the adjacent platform, the other at the opposite end of the car, both of which were finally subdued by special policemen to the screams of women and the crash of glass. Billy sang a lugubrious song of many stanzas about a cowboy, the refrain of which was, Bury me out on the lone prairie. That's one you've never heard before. My father used to sing it, he told Saxon, who was glad that it ended. She had discovered the first flaw in him. He was tone-deaf. Not once had he been on key. I don't sing often, he added. You bet your sweet life he don't, Bert exclaimed. His friends kill him if he did. They all make fun of my singing, he complained to Saxon. Honest now, did you find it as rotten as all that? It's, it's maybe flat a bit, she admitted reluctantly. It don't sound flat to me, he protested. It's a regular josh on me. I'll bet Bert put you up to it. You sing something now, Saxon. I bet you sing good. I can tell it from looking at you. She began when the harvest days are over. Bert and Mary joined in, but when Billy attempted to add his voice, he was dissuaded by a shin kick from Bert. Saxon sang in a clear, true soprano, thin but sweet, and she was aware that she was singing to Billy. Now, that is singing what is, he proclaimed when she had finished. Sing it again. Ah, oh, go on. You do it just right. It's great. His hand slipped to hers and gathered it in. And as she sang again, she felt the tide of his strength flood warmingly through her. Look at him holding hands, Bert jeered. Just a holding hands like they was afraid. Look at Mary and me. Come on and kick in. You cold feets, get together. If you don't, it'll look suspicious. I got my suspicions already. You're framing something up. There was no mistaking his innuendo, and Saxon felt her cheeks flaming. Get on to yourself, Bert, Billy reproved. Shut up, Mary added, the weight of her indignation. You're awfully raw, Bert Wanhope, and I won't have anything more to do with you. There. She withdrew her arms and shoved him away, only to receive him forgivingly half a dozen seconds afterward. Come on, the four of us, Bert went on, irrepressibly. The night's young. Let's make a time of it. Paps Cafe first and then some. What do you say, Bill? What do you say, Saxon? Mary's game. Saxon waited and wondered, half sick with apprehension of this man beside her 
whom she had known so short a time. Nope, he said slowly. I've got to get up to a hard day's work tomorrow, and I guess the girls has got to, too. Saxon forgave him for his tone deafness. Here was the kind of man she always had known existed. It was for some such man that she had waited. She was twenty-two, and her first marriage offer had come when she was sixteen. The last had occurred only the month before, from the foreman of the washing room, and he had been good and kind, but not young. But this one beside her, he was strong and kind and good and young. She was too young herself not to desire youth. There would have been rest from fancy starch with the foreman, but there would have been no warmth. But this man beside her, she caught herself on the verge involuntarily of pressing his hand that held hers. No, Bert, don't tease. He's right, Mary was saying. We've got to get some sleep. It's fancy starch tomorrow and all day on our feet. It came to Saxon with a chill pang that she was surely older than Billy. She stole glances at the smoothness of his face and the essential boyishness of him, so much desired, shocked her. Of course, he would marry some girl years younger than himself, than herself. How old was he? Could it be that he was too young for her? As he seemed to grow inaccessible, she was drawn toward him more compellingly. He was so strong, so gentle. She lived over the events of the day. There was no flaw there. He had considered her and Mary always. And he had torn the program up and danced only with her. Surely he had liked her, or he would not have done it. She slightly moved her hand in his and felt the harsh contact of his steamster's calluses. The sensation was exquisite. He, too, moved his hand to accommodate the shift of hers, and she waited fearfully. She did not want him to prove like other men, and she could have hated him had he dared to take advantage of that slight movement of her fingers and put his arm around her. He did not, and she flamed toward him. There was fineness in him. He was neither rattle-brained like Bert, nor coarse like other men she had encountered. For she had had experiences, not nice, and she had been made to suffer by the lack of what was termed chivalry, though she in turn lacked the word to describe what she divined and desired. And he was a prize-fighter. The thought of it almost made her gasp. Yet he answered not at all to her conception of a prize-fighter. But then, he wasn't a prize-fighter. He had said he was not. She resolved to ask him about it sometime, if, if he took her out again. Yet there was little doubt of that, for when a man danced with one girl a whole day, he did not drop her immediately. Almost she hoped that he was a prize-fighter. There was a delicious tickle of wickedness about it. Prize-fighters were such terrible and mysterious men, insofar as they were out of the ordinary and were not mere common working men, such as carpenters and laundrymen. They represented romance. Power also they represented. They did not work for bosses, but spectacularly and magnificently, with their own might, grappled with the great world and wrung splendid living from its reluctant hands. 
Some of them even owned automobiles and traveled with a retinue of trainers and servants. Perhaps it had been only Billy's modesty that made him say he had quit fighting, and yet there were the calluses on his hands. That showed he had quit. End of Section 5